So I'm going to switch subjects altogether here, all right? So we're going to shift our brains. And I wanted to uh, just tell with you that our, which is, which is nothing you really need to know, but it was kind of interesting to us, our mail came really, really late last night. Like after 7 o'clock. I, I don't know what was going on, but it was really late. And while we were waiting, I was reflecting on the fact that the mail that we receive consists mostly of bills and sales pitches and pleas for money, right? Anybody else have that different experience? Yeah. Getting a personal note or a letter has become a real rarity. And with the exception perhaps of a birthday card or a Christmas card with a note in it, I can't remember the last time I got a handwritten personal letter. But I can remember getting such letters. In fact, I have some that I've tucked away and saved over the years. So today we're going to begin a reader that was so special, considered so special by those who received it, that they too saved it, passing it on down through the centuries to us. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, not to an individual, but to a church, a small church in the ancient city of Philippi, which was a commercial and agricultural center located on a major trade route in the Greek province of Macedonia. The story of this church's founding in 50 AD, some 20 years after the crucifixion of Christ, is a unique one in Scripture. Up to that point, Paul's missionary work had been concentrated in Asia Minor, which we know as modern-day Turkey. But one night, he had a vision that led him to believe that he was called to continue his work in a new mission field, and this led him to travel to Philippi. Now, Paul's usual method when he came to a new place was to preach first in the local synagogue, and then when they threw him out, as invariably happened, to gather together those who had been drawn to his message into a church. But there was no synagogue in Philippi. And so Paul had to seek a new audience for his message. And he found it in a group of women who gathered for prayer by the bank of a river. One of them, a woman named Lydia, some of you may remember from Sunday school that she was a dealer in purple cloth, she was so moved by his words that she and her entire household were baptized. And from that humble beginning, the church grew, becoming one of the first Christian communities in Europe. After he moved on, Paul continued to communicate with this church via letters. And the one that we have preserved in our Bible is a testament to Paul's affection for this church for a church that became the nearest and dearest to his heart, a love letter to the congregation that he called his joy and crown. Paul begins his letter to the saints of Christ in Philippi with a prayer of thanks both for their faith in Christ and their faithfulness to him. It is right for me to think about all of you, he writes, because you hold me in your heart. He goes on to pray that their love for Christ might overflow and produce a harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Reading this, you would never know that Paul is writing this letter from prison, possibly in Rome itself, and that he is in danger of being executed. In fact, when Paul goes on to update the Philippians about his circumstances, he focused not on himself but in a way that his imprisonment has helped to spread the gospel by encouraging others to preach boldly. 
It is true, Paul admits, that some are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intended to increase my suffering and my imprisonment. But instead of being upset, he writes, what does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. I rejoice. Despite Paul's dire situation, this letter is permeated with a spirit of joy and hope. Paul rejoices in the love that he shares with the Philippians and even more in his relationship with Jesus Christ, whether it means his death or no. In fact, his greatest concern is not the possibility of his death, but that he will have the courage to defend his faith in Christ boldly so that Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. Every moment of his life, even his imprisonment, has become a means of Paul witnessing to and exalting Christ. This is not to say that he is blind to the danger that he is in. Not at all. In fact, it poses a dilemma for him. Let's listen. Julia, if you would read. The reading today is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 30, and it's page 196 in the New Testament in your pew Bibles. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. For to me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. Paul fully expects that he has a crown up in the kingdom. Ain't that good news, as the choir sang this morning. <laughs> if he is put to death, Paul trusts that he will finally see Christ face to face, and that is far better than anything else he can imagine. But he also knows that if he is freed, if he lives, then he will be engaged in fruitful labor, helping churches like the one in Philippi to grow in faith and joy. Though he confesses himself 
to find he, that he finds himself hard-pressed between the two. In the end, he chooses to lay aside his hope in favor of helping others. I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to see you again. His words remind me of the second refrain in that anthem. Lord, I keep so busy praising my Jesus, I ain't got time to die. Indeed, this letter is as much a love letter to Christ as it is to the Philippians. For Paul has given up everything in order to praise his Jesus. His relationship with Christ is absolutely central to his life. It is the hope that gives him strength, the object of any boast he might make, and the joy for which he is willing to suffer, even to die, if his suffering and death will give glory to his Lord. His dedication to Christ is absolute, and he calls upon the Philippians to follow his example. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, he writes. It's interesting to note that when he says, live your life, he is using language that relates to politics. His words might be best translated as, exercise your citizenship. And indeed, he will go on later to remind the Philippians that their citizenship is in heaven and that their Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ, a statement that is bold, he is bold to make in the midst of a Roman colony that named Caesar as its Lord. I'm reminded of the baptismal vows that we heard just a few minutes ago. In particular, the vow that says, in the affirmative, I confess Jesus Christ as my Savior, put my whole trust in his grace, and promise to serve him as my Lord. That's also a pretty bold statement to make, especially since we live in a society that promotes the self and in a political climate that urges us to put our desires above others' needs. To serve Christ first means to put Jesus first, to regard Christ as the ultimate authority in our lives, and to put his service above our service to everything else, even ourselves. Thank goodness for the rest of that vow, which says that we do this in union with the church, which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races. We do not follow Christ on our own. And indeed, when Paul says, only live your life in the sentence, the your is plural. He is talking to the Philippians about their common life together. He goes on to urge them to stand firm in one spirit and to strive side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Both of these phrases point to a unity that goes beyond simple membership in an organization. Do you remember what you promised to do for Kayla and Nora this morning? You said, with God's help, we will proclaim the good news and live according to the example of Christ. We will surround them with a community of love and forgiveness that they may grow in their trust of God and be found faithful in their service to others. We will pray for them that they may be true disciples who walk in the way that leads to life. This is the kind of unity about which Paul is speaking. It is being bound together in the love of Christ, sharing in one another's struggles and triumphs, and working together to offer the good news of the gospel to the world. 
We need each other's help because the message that we have to offer is not always welcomed. Paul also tells the Philippians that they should not be intimidated by their opponents. Now, we don't know exactly who those opponents were, but it seems likely that the church was experiencing some kind of persecution. Given that Paul also says that the Philippians are engaged in the same struggle that, I, that you saw that I had and now hear that I am having, it is possible that they were having trouble with the civil authorities in Philippi. Again, I'm reminded of the baptismal vows, and particularly the one that reads, again in the affirmative, I renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of my sin. Evil can be spiritual in nature, but it also, sadly, can be very human. And the forces and powers to which this vow refers include those institutions and power structures that perpetuate injustice and oppression, as well as to the values of our culture that damage and destroy life. Such systemic evil is often accepted as normal, even necessary, But as Christ followers, we are called to reject such institutions, structures, and values, to repent of our own participation in them, and to support organization and structures that foster healing and hope and life. If this feels overwhelming, it may help to look again at the vow that follows this one. I accept the freedom and power that God gives me to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. Though we may find ourselves confronted by evil, injustice, and oppression, God promises to give us the strength and the courage to stand firm, to say yes to God and no to everything that opposes God. Paul even goes so far as to suggest that the opposition that the Philippians face will lead not to destruction, but to salvation. All this is God's doing, he writes, for he has granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but also suffering for him as well. And we don't usually think of suffering as much of a privilege, do we? But Paul sees it as an opportunity to grow closer to the one who suffered and died for them and for us. Most of us, thank God, do not face overt suffering today. However, we live in a time of great indifference and even hostility toward organized religion, and we've seen the decline in participation not only in our church but in all churches, in all faith organizations, actually. It's all too easy in the face of the facts that are in front of us to become imprisoned by fear and a sense of hopelessness. Will the church, will we survive? I think Paul would tell us, look around and see your salvation. There is a great longing for the spiritual and a desperate need for the things that we as a church have to offer, hope, community, Love, and yes, joy, even in the face of all that is happening in the world. We have so much to share, so much to give in the name of Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, I say to you with all love, 
Let us live, us live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit and striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, trusting in God's grace and the promises that we received in our baptism. Let us be so busy sharing love, offering help, raising hope, and praising our Jesus that we ain't got time to die. Amen? And amen.